Welcome to the Black History and Law Reflection Series. My name is Orissa. I'm a third year law student. And during this Black History Month, I'm just taking the opportunity to speak with some law students and aspiring lawyers within the University of Birmingham to reflect on what Black History Month means to them in relation to law and justice. So today I'm joined by Israel and Tamia, who both sit on the committee of the Black and Ethnic Minority Association, also known as BIMA. Thank you both for joining me today. Please take a moment to introduce yourselves, let everyone know who you are and what you do. All right. Thank you so much for, for having us, Arissa. So my name is Israel. I'm a second year law with French law student here at UOB. I hold two positions. I'm um, the ethnic minority student officer at the Guild of Students, and I'm also a co-chair of BIMA. Um, you could probably tell from my accent, I'm not from the UK. <laughs> um, I was raised in Montreal, Canada. And yeah, that's me. Yeah, thanks so much for having uh, me, Arissa. My name is Tamir. I'm a third-year philosophy, religion, and ethics student, um, and I'm the women's officer for BIMA. Um, so my role in that is just to really uplift and inspire uh, women of ethnically diverse backgrounds and just kind of give them a voice on campus. Um, yeah, and I'm aspiring martial law um, or human rights law. Solicitor in that area, something law related. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. No problem. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for taking the time um, to speak with me today. To start off with then, I think it's great if we take a moment to think about a historical figure or event in black history um, that has impacted the law and access to justice. So Israel, could you tell us about something that really stands out to you? Yes. Um, so there's actually a couple of things. <laughs> um, there's um, a person I want to talk about and then a case I want to talk about. Um, these are both coming out of Canada because I wanted to pick something closer to home. Um, so the first person um, is a woman named uh, Juanita Westmoreland Traoré. Um, so um, she's um, a lawyer <laughs> who's uh, born and raised in Montreal, which is my hometown. Um, but um, well, first of all, she did a lot of amazing things in her career, but she's most famously known for being um, in 1996, she was the first black dean of a Canadian law school. And then in 1999, she was Quebec's first black judge. So two pretty big, amazing feats. Um, but also, you know, interesting to think that this wasn't even that long ago, like just barely over 20 years ago um, and seeing how you know, it's it's taken such a long time for, for Black people to reach certain positions, um, which does have huge effects on access to justice, um, which I guess we'll talk about a lot more later on. Um, but moving on to the case I wanted to talk about, which is the Fred Christie case. Um, so just quickly outlining the fact of the case, um, it involved a Black man, Fred Christie, and his um, white French-Canadian friend, um, they went to this bar uh, called the York Tavern and, you know, they went there to just have a couple drinks and, you know, that's it. Um, but he was actually refused service because he was black, Fred Christie. Um, and, you know, he didn't take it too lightly. He was, you know, he was angry. So he called the police, um, you know, trying to get them to do something and, you know, say like, they're not serving me um, because of my race. Like, what are you going to do about it? And the police didn't really do anything about it. Um, 
so you know this kind of brought us some kind of like outcry or outrage from the community um and the community actually came together to fund him so that he could get his case heard in court um so in the first instance um the judges actually sided with uh fred christie saying that his rights had been violated but then the, um, the case was appealed um and in the second instance the judges actually sided with um the york tavern with the bar um saying that you know they were within their rights to refuse service to to anyone um that they you know there was nothing wrong um with what had happened so you know fred christie appealed again he appealed to the supreme court of canada um this was in 1939 and um he actually lost the case um so the judges um you know they said you know freedom of commerce should prevail and you know um, the bar did everything right you know they were super calm and everything and actually you fred christie you were causing the commotion calling in the police and uh you know you were really over overstepping here um and there was actually only one judge who who dissented and said um you know <laughs> this isn't right like what's going on um so if anything i don't know if i would say that this case is a defining moment in um in legal history but i'd say it's really a significant case um to you know really display how um racial discrimination really persisted even at the highest level of justice um in canada especially well this was in 1939 um this is a while ago um but even just thinking how it took um a few years after this case for actual change to happen um for you know civil rights to finally be promoted um, and it was in 1975 that Quebec enacted its Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms, um, which prevented taverns from discriminating on the basis of race. Um, so there has been change, but even looking at that 1975, that is like not even 50 years ago, um, similar to what I'd said before, um, a lot of these changes in society are very recent um, relative to you know the history of um, Black people being in North America. Um, and yeah, it's just, interesting and sad um, just to see the circumstances um, of, of living um, for Black people and how the law hasn't necessarily helped them um, and access to justice has been very limited historically and how it's it has improved definitely um, in the past few decades, but how there are still problems today. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that, Israel. That's a really interesting case and it's it really reminds me of the situation in the UK around the sort of late 1960s, early 1970s with race relations, because in around about 1968, or in 1968, uh, the first Race Relations Act was um, passed in the UK. And that was as a response to these color bars. So um, people being refused service in, in public um, places. Um, so it's really interesting to see how the same things were happening in Canada and in the UK. So yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. All right, um, and Tamia, would you be able to sort of tell the listeners a little bit about something that really stands out to you in terms of black history and law and justice? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so the person that I wanted to kind of focus on was Angela Davis. Um, I think she's really cool. Um, she was born in Birmingham, Alabama in '44. Um, and she's very vocal about the case of black liberation and the need um, for feminism within that exploration of justice as well. So I think what's important about her is that she talks about the need to think about intersectionality. 
So by that we mean how you can't just look at advancements for civil rights just from the perspective of women. You have to look at the perspective of black women as a whole. And you can't just look at black people either because collectively the experiences of black women are different to black men and other people who fall outside of the gender binary as well. Um, and so I think what I really like about her is that she's extremely outspoken um, in just every way that she talks about liberation. And so she really subverts the notion that women should be overlooked and that the civil rights movement is mainly about it as a collective, it's about the liberation for all black people, but within that she notes that even women are overlooked in that. And so she subverts that and argues that the liberation of black women is imperative for the liberation of all black people. And you think it would be a given, right? You think it'd be like, oh well, you know, well duh, like but the fact of the matter is that today we're seeing cases like Brianna Taylor, Sandra Bland and people like that that black women are still overlooked and it's not about playing oppression olympics you know but it's about really highlighting the issues that women have faced now and i think davis is really good at highlighting in the law where things need to change so i think her ideas about intersectionality is really powerful um in the sense that as black women as a black woman myself my experience is going to be different to that other white women um because not only do I have to deal with the fact that I'm a woman and there's a gender pay gap and there's this perceived notion of how I should be in society, it's then coupled with my racial identity. Um, and I can't escape from either. So I think Davis is really good at putting that at the forefront. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for sharing that. Something I think is really important when approaching any Black History Month, while we consider the past, we should also consider the present and, and what's going on around us and how we can improve. So, Israel, would you be able to share with us an example of how laws are currently affecting Black communities today? Mm, definitely. Um, so, looking at the law and access to justice, um, I think there's two sides to it. So there's the people who um, let's say administer the law, the people who um, uphold the law, um, and then yeah, people who defend it or people who enforce it. Um, so when we're looking at people who enforce the law, um, most of the time we're looking at police officers, and you know they're normally the ones that we call if anything goes wrong or um, you know if uh, there's any kind of dispute, um, you know physically. It's normally the police officers that we call, and we should consider how, first of all, how, you know, there's a lot of prestige that are given to police officers. So looking at, you know, they're regarded as heroes, you know, as they should be, they do um, dangerous work. They do um, things that um, a lot of people might not necessarily be able to do. And they should be respected for that, definitely. Um, but also looking at things that they do that aren't as respectable, to put it nicely. Um, so looking at, you know, what happens when police officers do things wrong, what happens when police officers commit crimes, who polices the police, um, what happens um, if, you know, any charges are brought against them or someone wants to complain about them. Um, so that kind of brings me into this area, which I like to call legal loopholes. So looking at different ways that police officers are protected um, 
essentially from 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 anything. So how police officers get away with with um, with anything that they do. And there's a number of ways um, that this can happen. And I'm just going to outline a couple of them today. So the first one I'm going to look at is something that is probably more commonly known, which is qualified immunity. Um, and actually, no, just thinking about it now, I think a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about are um, American examples. Um, but I'm pretty sure that they can be, you know, um, that there are similar provisions in other jurisdictions. Um, yeah, so moving on to qualified immunity. So looking at a definition of what um, it is, what the doctrine is, um, it is a judicially created doctrine that shields government officials from being held personal, personally liable for constitutional violations for money damages under federal law, so long as officials did not violate clearly established law. So um, if I recall correctly, this um, this provision was created in 1871, was um, was put in place in 1871 um, for a specific reason. But as we moved on into the 20th and the 21st century, kind of seeing that it has evolved more from protecting police officers to um, encourage them to do good things um, and has kind of more looked into protecting police officers who do bad things, um, really bad things. Um, and the case of Harlow versus Fitzgerald in 1982 um, is a pretty good example of how the, um, the modern definition of qualified immunity, um, how it stands and what it looks at today, um, what it looks like today. So in Harlow, the court established that a plaintiff could overcome qualified immunity only by showing that the defendant's conduct violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. So I'm gonna kind of break this down into two parts. So looking at clearly established statutory or constitutional rights. So essentially what that means is that you, there needs to be a precedent case with virtually very similar facts um, where qualified immunity was denied um, in order for that to be kind of carried over into uh, the current case in question. And a lot of the times you'll find that this doesn't really apply. Um, you know, as law students, we, we know that, you know, it's not very often that you'll have um, two cases that are exactly the same or that are very, very, very similar. Um, and in this case, it kind of creates a loophole in the sense that, you know, if there isn't really a case that has been decided um, that kind of fits the description of the, of the current case, um, then a lot of the times police officers will be given um, qualified immunity which essentially gives them um, escape from liability. And there's a few justifications for qualified immunity, but a couple of them are, um, firstly, an argument is made that, you know, um, it can decrease the expenses of litigation. So, you know, there'll be less time spent in court if, um, if courts are kind of allowed from the, from the beginning or from the early stages to say, okay, there's qualified immunity, this case doesn't have to go forward. Um, you know, there'll be um, less less funds that need to be spent um, in the in the courts or, um, you know, the courts can um, spend more time deciding more pertinent cases um, or cases that need more time. Um, and then another argument, which is um, potentially more significant, is the argument that, you know, if police officers are worried about being prosecuted or being charged for things that go wrong when they're in the field, then they'll be less encouraged to perform their job to the best of their ability. So 
you know, the argument is, you know, with qualified immunity, we can ensure that police officers um, won't necessarily have second thoughts about doing their job. You know, they they won't feel like, oh, I should be super careful or I shouldn't even do my job because I don't want to get prosecuted. Um, and as we have seen, this hasn't necessarily worked in the favor of the general public. Um, we see it's normally the um, general population that um, is negatively impacted by um, these loopholes that exist for police officers. Um, and I guess a prime example of this would be the case of Gabriel Windsor in 2013. Um, so just to quickly outline what the case um, or what the, the facts of the situation were, was that um, police, officer, police officers had um, received a call about a black man who was shooting, um, shooting a gun at mailboxes um, in a neighborhood. Um, and I think the description was like he was wearing like a brown top or something like that. Um, so you had a whole bunch of like police officers that were, you know, patrolling the area ready to to catch this um, the suspect. Then you have um, Gabriel Windsor, who's passing by on his bike. Um, he didn't fit the description other than that he was a black guy. Um, and he happened to have this bright orange toy gun on his belt. Um, but, you know, his hands were on the handlebars because he was riding a bike. So he wouldn't have been able to do um, anything with the toy gun. So um, if I remember correctly, there was about six seconds from the time police officers saw Gabriel Windsor, um, shouted orders at him to stop, and from them actually firing shots. Um, and they fired between 17 and 29 shots at Gabriel. Um, and he didn't die on the spot, um, but he died shortly after um, from the injuries. And essentially, the officers escaped liability because, you know, there was no precedent. There was no case that was similar enough to to um, to remove their qualified immunity. Um, so, yeah, that's just a prime example where, you know, qualified immunity just um, kind of allows, you know, a backdoor for police officers to say, you know, I can get away with um, with what I'm doing, um, which is very sad. Um, and we can see, you know, in many recent cases of uh, police brutality that have been um, televised or have been uh, publicized, um, that this is an option in a lot of cases for police officers. And maybe this is something that police officers have in the back of their mind when they're, when they're, when they're in the field, whenever they're doing something that, you know, I'll have this protection. Um, another um, loophole that exists is something called reasonable fear. Um, so I guess um, from, from the title reasonable fear, you need to be able to prove um, that you had um a fear of like danger towards you or I guess um your fellow police officers um in a situation um which will force you to take action. Um and if you can prove this in a court, um then you will then you will basically you'll be able to escape liability again. Um so these are just you know a couple of examples of how police officers are placed on a pedestal um so much that essentially at times they become they're they're essentially above the law um because in some cases the law doesn't necessarily apply to them um or they're not um judged as harshly as someone else and you know this kind of affects this very much affects um the black community in the sense that you know um there's not really much protection that can be awarded um, for black people who are wronged by the police. 
Um, we've seen so many people who've lost their lives because of um, police misconduct, because of police brutality, and them not getting justice um, because of certain certain rules, certain statutes um, that allow police officers to get away with um, these heinous crimes that they've committed. Um, so yeah, that's that's my piece. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. It really just does remind us that um, accountability is incredibly important. And if the law doesn't allow for police um, to be held accountable for their actions, then there's not very much that can legally be done to help when anyone's wronged by them. So yeah, that's incredibly insightful. Thanks so much for sharing. All right, and um, Tamia, is there any particular area of law that you feel uh, we should really think about in terms of how it impacts black communities? Um, yeah, so I just, to build on what Israel was saying, I think the issue of policing, not only in the UK, but in the States, really become, comes to a head when we talk about the prison industrial complex, because again, it's those who administer the law and those who maintain it. So police administer, and then prisons kind of maintain the status quo. Um, so yeah, the prison industrial complex, particularly in the States. So it's to do with how prisons have overlapping interests with uh, governmental bodies um, for, the, for the product of mainly economic means, but also political. Um, and so the result is that private prisons use inmates for profit. And so this becomes obviously a huge, huge problem. Um, and so prisoners are often paid as little as 23 cents to $1.15 an hour, which obviously is inhumane. And even um, a more recent example is prisoners are being used to fight the bushfires in California, obviously risking their lives for a couple of cents. And now there is an argument that, well, making them work um, for so little money is a form of retribution and it's also reform. Um, but I disagree considering that is inhumane treatment for people who could have been committed, uh, who could have committed petty crimes, or so the like. Um, the government also claims that they can't afford to um, pay these prisoners um, at least the minimum wage um, because a, a fraction of their pay gets cut for maybe like alimony, um, the price of running the prison, or child support. Um, and so this has resulted in the fact that prison labour and the industry in the states is worth an estimated $1 billion to $1.7 billion, um, at least of 2017, which is absolutely insane. So now we couple that with what Israel was talking about and the fact that black people and people of colour are notoriously over-policed. So I think we have to look back at the roots of the modern, so-called modern policing system in the States. So um, slaves were so-called emancipated in 1865, and that is around the same time in which um, the first police <clears throat> organisation was set up. And so what we can see from there and the connection that we have is that it wasn't until 4 million people were, 4 million black people were emancipated that the government felt the need to be like, oh, now we need to do something about these people because whilst they legally can't be enslaved because of the 13th Amendment, we're going to put them in a system that makes it legal for them to be enslaved and therefore that can pop back into our economy. Um, so yeah, so I think it's really important to look at that 
Um, and so African Americans were arrested in huge amounts from the eight from eighteen sixty five for petty things like vagrancy, um, loitering. But of course, if you are if you have a society that is systemically racist, how are black people meant to get jobs and provide for themselves? They can't. And so obviously the comp- the prison industrial complex falls back into that. And so people often say like, oh, that was however many years ago, but it's still relevant today because the prison population has increased increased dramatically, particularly when President Reagan um, declared the war on drugs in 1982. And so this became a problem as well, particularly in the 80s, because they made um, economic inequality criminal. They criminalised economic inequality. But the way they did it was using a systemically racist foundation. So black people were arrested in massive shrouds for possession of crack cocaine. Again, economic inequality, can't get jobs, and so that filters through. Um, Whereas white people who were seen to possess powder cocaine got slaps on the wrist. And so we see that there's a disproportionality in the the level of sentencing that we see within the system. And so from here now to modern day, the prison population has just boomed to the point in which um, America is obviously home to 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's prisoners. And again, people have argued, oh, well, maybe it's just because America is tougher on laws and they hold people accountable. But clearly we need to look internally and see the issues with over-policing and the disproportionality in seeing black and well, seeing non-white bodies as violent and scary. So, um, for example, the SB 1070 bill was passed in 2010 in Arizona. And so the police were able to stop anyone who they thought looked like an immigrant. And again, obviously, when you have a policing system that is built on the back of systemic racism and oppression, who are they going to who are they going to indoctrinate? Who are they going to try and imprison? Non-white bodies, predominantly. And so, again, this filters into how it, it could be argued that the prison system is a form of modern slavery. Um, again, when you have predominantly um, black and brown bodies that contribute to this system and get very little in return. Um, and this is all legal through the 13th Amendment. Um, so people are it's illegal to hold people as slaves unless they're in prison. So I think just from my my degree standpoint, um, the philosophy aspect and the ethics aspects of things, you'd always ask, well, at what cost? Um, and clearly, very it's a massive thing for the states, um, and it's all about business. And you just think that's inhumane that a human life can be resorted to just some checks just some checks and zeros on our checkbook like it just seems inhumane that that would be the law in which it stands um yeah that was my piece and i just think things need changing definitely and that's where davis comes in um where she talks a lot about prison reform um in her book are prisons obsolete so yeah i think you should definitely look into that um a lot of things are quite controversial but just as giving you a good basis as to why this is a problem and why reform is necessary, at least highlighting the issues that need to, need to be changed is very important. So, yeah. yeah, thanks so much for sharing that to you. That was um, a really great um, perspective into critically thinking about the prison system. Um, 
And yeah, in addition to the book that you um, suggest by Angela Davis, I think if you haven't already, check out um, some of uh, Ava DuVernay's documentaries on Netflix if you have. There's one called 13th. Um, um, and I watched that a little while ago. That's um, a re gives you a really good perspective into how that works in the States. And then thanks so much for sharing, guys. Okay, um, so now that we've had the opportunity to think about um, Black history in the past and um, how laws are affecting Black people in the present, um, I think it's a great opportunity to look to the future and consider what needs to be changed and improved to just um, ensure access to justice for Black communities. So Tamia, do you want to share with us um, what you think in this sort of area? that we have more um, implicit bias training, and not only just more, the fact that it's compulsory. Um, so I think people are very quick to say, well, I'm not racist or I'm not sexist, without looking at the underlying and maybe subconscious attitudes that they may have. Um, and so in one of my modules that I'm actually doing this year, we were particularly focusing on how implicit bias is. So whereby you associate um, a minority group or a disenfranchised group with, um, negative stereotypes um, a lot of that could be due with the way you're socialized obviously not to absolve blame onto people who are just racist and horrible however there was an argument put forward that for example if you grow up in a society that teaches like first of all there's a gender binary and that girls should only wear pink and that boys um, should wear blue that you're more likely to maintain that attitude particularly when you're a child and you can't really get away from what society is telling you. So a lot of negative, so if you have a society that is systemically racist and systemically oppressive, you can often subconsciously carry those attitudes forward with you into adulthood um, without really looking at the underlying issues as to why that is the case. Because consciously you can be anti-racist and you can be the most anti-racist person ever. However, subconsciously, not all people, but maybe some people, may have these attitudes. Um, and so I think it's important that through having implicit bias training that you just become aware of maybe these negative attitudes that, that people may hold. Um, and it's not about blame, it's about what you do after the fact that you that is important once you have accountability for what, for what is important. Um, and people will, may, may argue like, oh, well, this is not important. Um, oh, it doesn't matter because I'm still an actively anti-racist person. But what people don't understand is your subconscious feelings and thoughts often impact your line of work and how you interact with certain people. So, for example, like, if you're walking down the street and you pass a black person, um, then you might clutch your purse tighter than usual or you might cross the street and you may not even be aware that you're doing it at this point, like, and so this is a subconscious attitude that is affecting the way you interact with the, with the world around you. And often this is the difference between life and death between for black people and well non-white people and just people in general. So I think it's important that through introspection, people just become more aware of this fact and just do better. It's not about blame, but also accountability and just advancing as a whole. And we're just seeing how our thoughts interact with our behaviours and just doing better and going forward including everyone in that as well. Definitely. Thanks so much for sharing, um, Tamiya. So Israel, uh, what what do you think 
is a, an area that we need to change going forward. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that whenever we're looking at change, um, I think, first of all, it's kind of tempting to want like um, short term change, you know, something that can be changed like immediately or something that we can see right away. Um, and that's really tempting to, to try and put in place. But I believe that you know, long term change is the one that will actually have um, a greater impact. And, and I think to, to bring about long term change, we um, really need to start at the bottom. So looking at, you know, I guess people at the top versus people at the bottom, looking at, first of all, what, um, what circumstances um, in, in sometimes, you know, what, what keeps people at the bottom. So we know like, you know, the system, a lot of the systems that are in place today were made to keep people at the top, people at the bottom, like I said before. Um, but looking at, you know, what can be actively changed to elevate the people at the bottom um, to a high level. Um, so I guess there's kind of like three ways you can look at um, the relationship between, um, for, for this purpose, black people and white people. Um, so looking at, you know, the starting point. So white people are at a specific starting point, which is higher than the starting point for black people. So I think there's three ways you can look at how to change that. Um, either black people push themselves up to the position of white people, um, which is what has been happening for them for, for a long time, um, to put it lightly. Um, so, you know, you have instances where black people have to work twice thrice as hard um, to, you know, to be respected or seen at the same level as white people. Um, second way is if white people are brought down to the level of black people, um, which I think we could say is very improbable. I don't think um, anyone in a position of power would at least initially willingly bring themselves down out of that power. So I think the third option, which is probably um, the better option would be white people um, using the privilege that they have and the power that they have to uplift black people to the same position. Um, and that applies for all, um, all different ethnicities, all different groups. Um, that we're all at least respected um, equally and we're all treated um, equally. Um, I think also looking at um, how we get to that point, I don't think we can necessarily say that we are looking for equality in the sense, this might be controversial, but like in the sense that, you know, looking at the demographics, um, there is a very big majority of white people um, in the UK, um, well over 80%. Um, and just looking at all the other ethnic groups, um, I don't think it's practical to say that we want complete equality in everything because realistically, um, I don't think that's attainable. I don't think that's achievable in some respects, but I think equity is really what we got to look at. So like making sure that, you know, at least we're not treated differently um, or seen differently because of um, any kind of characteristics, because of the way we look, because of the way we are. Um, making sure that, you know, if there are any barriers that exist, making sure that they're the same for all people, um, making sure that we're judged based on our individual competencies, our individual um, skills, um, making sure that that's actually what we're looking at as um, what people can offer as individuals compared to, um, you know, what, whatever they look like. Um, 
And back to what I was saying before about how change needs to start at the bottom. I think really looking at, um, I think really socioeconomic circumstances for people, um, there's a lot um, of barriers that arise from that. A lot of things that, um, that um, black people specifically um, are held back from because of um, their socioeconomic situation. So looking at how we can kind of, I don't know if I should say invest <laughs> in, um, in, in in black communities and poor communities um, so that they can be able to um, partake and um, make advantage of, um, of the same opportunities that white people have. Um, so something that's been very popular in the past few months has been uh, defunding the police. Um, so for people who don't know what that is, that's basically just um, taking a lot of the funds that are invested into um, police departments. Um, I don't have numbers or statistics to say whether what's invested in police departments right now is um, effectively being spent um, or where it goes, but looking at how we can move those funds into the community and into public services that will actually benefit the community. So looking at um, food banks, looking at rehabilitation, looking at therapy, you know, um, trying to promote um, the good well, um, the welfare of individuals in the black community. Because um, if a lot of black people are caught in like a cycle, you know, it's like a constant cycle of, you know, um, oh, I didn't have a lot. So that means I had to, you know, do something um, that, you know, that maybe go to prison. Um, that means, um, you know, I couldn't raise my children properly. And then it's just like a constant cycle, you know, um, that's um, a lot of it's perpetuated because of um, um, the disadvantage that um, black people face um, or people in, um, in, in poor communities. So looking at how we can really elevate people and give them access to resources that they need so that they can benefit from that. Um, and it will take a long time, but then eventually, then I think we'll start to we'll start to see um, people, um, you know, benefiting from the same education um, as certain um, people higher up in society um, can benefit from. Um, which means, I guess, looking at specifically access to justice, you know, um, being aware of um, of the laws, being aware of different avenues that they can um, that they can take, um, having you know, proper funding to, to, to fund um, litigation so that they can, you know, pay for lawyers um, that they don't necessarily, in the, in the hope that they won't necessarily have to worry about these kind of things, um, which a lot of um, black people face at the moment. Um, so really just working from the ground up, just making sure that we can build society up from the bottom um, so that we can benefit from, from the things that society offers um, that people have not historically been able to benefit from. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so much to think about there. Um, so many important points raised. Um, thank you so much, Israel and Tamia for joining me today. Thanks to all the listeners who are still with us. Um, I really hope you can use this as food for thought. Um, maybe start a conversation with a friend, um, or a relative about, um, something that you've heard today and really continue that conversation. And also um, be sure to check out some of the accompanying resources, um, learn more um, about these topics and look, and hopefully you'll join us for another um, reflections episode. Thank you so much.
Thank you.